Thank you, Liwa, for reading 35 verses. <laughs> a bit long, but uh, the, the, this whole episode of, of this story, this event of the Council of Jerusalem uh, requires uh, that, that whole chunk. Lah. Okay, let's come to God in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you will do what you intend to do this morning in our hearts. And so would you open our minds, our ears, our hearts. May I be found faithful to the preaching of your word. May we glorify you this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, have you ever had a... Uh, click. Uh, have you ever had a difficult decision to make? Uh, if you have ever used GrabFood or FoodPanda or one of those food delivery services, you know how difficult it can be to choose what to eat, right? There are so many choices. Sometimes you can just scroll, scroll, scroll for half an hour, 45 minutes, and you still cannot find the right restaurant, especially if there's more people. Uh, I was teaching my mom how to use GrabFood the other day, and when she finally saw the list of restaurants, and she kept going and going and going. Eventually, she said, Ayah, never mind lah, I go out to Genting and Tapaum. Too many choices. But having choice paralysis isn't as bad as one of the most difficult decisions to make in the entire world, deciding what to eat for lunch after service. Right? Uh, so if you are struggling with that one, or if you are going to struggle with that one, I make it very simple for you lah. Okay, go and eat at the food court at Batulancha Market after service. Okay, uh, I'm not getting any commission. Huh? <laughs> it's just helping you to decide. Okay, today we are looking at a, a difficult decision uh, that the, the, the early church was facing. But of course, this is a far more important decision than just deciding what to eat. And the big idea, the takeaway message of what we are looking at today is that the church unites over God-centered decision-making, okay? So if you forget everything, this is the one thing to remember. The church unites over God-centered decision-making. Now, we're continuing our sermon series through the book of Acts. And last week, we saw Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey and how they brought the gospel to a lot of Gentiles in several cities. In some of these places, the people believed. Uh, in other places, like Lystra, where we spent most of our, our time going through uh, last week, uh, they were persecuted, they were chased off. Okay? So there were successes and, and failures in that sense. Now, I didn't mention this last week, but it is relevant to our passage today, so I, I should mention this. And that is, uh, the cities of Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. So these were the cities that were mentioned uh, last week when Paul and Barnabas you know, went to these cities and preached to them in Acts chapter 13 and 14. So these cities, Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, they are all part of the region of Galatia. Okay, so southern Galatia, uh, if you can see the, the pink text, Galatia, yeah? So the, the cities are all running through that area. So when Paul writes the letter to the Galatians, 
it is probably to the churches that he planted in those regions. And some of the events that Paul describes in his letter to the Galatians might have also occurred around this time in the book of Acts. Okay, let me explain what I mean. Huh? Imagine you're reading a biography about the life of Elon Musk. Okay? And this book covers his birth, his childhood, his schooling, university days, how he founded SpaceX and Tesla, his three failed marriages and nine children and so on and so on. Okay, his life. Uh, up till now, lah, he's, he's still alive. Lah. Uh, then one day, Elon Musk shares on Twitter, okay, and he, he posts a picture of an old letter to his high school girlfriend. Okay, or, or he, he tweets a, a screenshot of a text message that he sent to uh, an employee at Tesla in one of his early days. So, it's a snapshot of events that have happened throughout this book. Okay, so the New Testament epistles are something like that. Stuff that were written throughout the events of the book of Acts. Okay, so Paul's letters to the Galatians, Corinthians, uh, Thessalonians, uh, Ephesians and all that, it's all sprinkled out throughout the book of Acts. Now, why am I talking about Galatians here? Uh, we will come to that later, lah, okay? but I just wanted to, to plant this first, okay? that uh, the events of Paul's, letters to the, Paul's letter to the Galatians is somewhere around this area. So the gospel has been reaching the Gentiles, okay? and those who have never known the Jewish customs were embracing the gospel and being saved. So this is uh, part of Paul and Barnabas's missionary journey a lot to the Gentiles. But in today's passage, we see that this bringing the gospel to the Gentiles is challenged. Ah. There was a group of people who were teaching the believers in Antioch that circumcision was a requirement for someone to be saved. And so Paul calls this the, the circumcision group in some of his letters. Okay. Now, before we go further, I need to remind us, uh, because we are all Gentiles, lah, I don't know any Jews in this congregation, uh, so we, we, we are very distant from the Jewish identity, culture, practices, customs. But I need to remind us that the church, the early church especially, was born in Jerusalem, and many who followed Jesus were Jewish. Okay, so the roots of Christianity came from a very Jewish setting. The Messiah, Jesus, was a Jew, okay? And he, he did very Jewish things, okay? He was a, a Jewy guy. So much of the entire uh, church, the early church at this point, had very Jewish roots, and they continued to follow Jewish customs. And until... Okay, if you can't see what this is, this is Peter's vision in Acts chapter 10, okay? So until... Acts chapter 10, Peter himself was still observing food laws. Okay, he said, up to this point, I have remained uh, clean. I, ha I have not uh, eaten anything unclean. And so, he, he is just an example of um, believers who continued to keep some of these uh, Jewish customs. Now, early on, many considered Christianity to be a Jewish sect, okay, so like a branch of Judaism, just that it was very focused on the Messiah. 
So they, they thought, okay, uh, this is just another, another form of Judaism lah, okay, that just keep revolving around this rabbi. But I want you to remember something else as well. I mentioned a couple of sermons ago, before all these developments in the book of Acts, Gentiles, who are non-Jews, didn't have any real opportunity to worship God, okay, the God of the Israelites. If they wanted to worship God, they had to become Jews, and the requirement was they had to sac- uh, give a sacrifice at the temple, uh, they had to be circumcised, and they had to go through water baptism. After that, they kept the law of Moses, and so they were, they were Jews uh, in, in, in how they lived. And although they were allowed in the temple, it was only in the outside, the outer courts of the Gentiles, okay? The outer, outer periphery of the temple. Okay, so, so keeping all that in mind, let's continue with today's passage. Oh, sorry, court of Gentiles. Okay, so you see the, the small little square... Uh, right in the middle, that, tri- that rectangular thing, that's the temple. The big rectangle, that one is the outer courts. Okay. So, Paul and Barnabas are sent to church leaders in Jerusalem because uh, there is this issue that has arisen. Uh, okay? That the uh, people are saying, the, the circumcision group is saying, Gentiles need to be circumcised in order to be saved. They are, they are suggesting that they need to, to become Jews in order to be saved. And so when Paul and Barnabas uh, come to Jerusalem, they are welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported on their first missionary journey, okay? Including one part of the, the highlights of their reports is, look, so many Gentiles have come to accept the gospel, you know, and they are praising God. And there in Jerusalem some Pharisees who had become believers, they are agreeing with this circumcision group and they believe that Gentiles still had to become Jews in order to be saved through Christ. Uh, by the way, nowadays calling somebody a Pharisee is a bit of an insult. Okay? <laughs> if you say, you Pharisee, uh, you're, you're, you, usually you're, you're saying, calling that person a hypocrite. But don't forget that Nicodemus, uh, Paul, they were Pharisees, okay? So they weren't all murderous hypocrites. In fact, they were quite well respected. So this issue brought up by these Pharisees, uh, believers who belong to this Pharisee group, uh, is not brought up as something nasty to cause trouble, okay? It's not like they, they are trying to stir up the pot and... and uh, yeah, yeah, let's just, let's just create trouble for the church, okay? It is a relevant question during this time uh, in the early part of the Christian faith, okay? Given their Jewish roots. And so three main, three, three main things I'd like for us to look at today. Firstly, uh, in, in how they dealt with all of this. Firstly, the presence of conflict. Secondly, how they took a God-centered approach in addressing the conflict, and thirdly, how they remain united as a church throughout. Okay, firstly, I want to point out the reality of how conflict is present here amidst the believers. Now, I wrestled on this point while preparing many times. 
a lot of times I, I considered leaving it out, doing something else, but I kept being drawn back to it. Okay, and so it, I, I've learned that in the course of sermon preparation, if I keep coming back to the same thing, okay, God is saying something. Okay, so um, the, the conflict is very present uh, amidst the believers. And when I say conflict, I don't necessarily mean um, angry fighting and bitterness and, you know, uh, throwing things at each other or whatever, lah, calling each other names. Okay, conflict simply that there is a, a disagreement, okay? Doesn't necessarily have to be mean or nasty, but there's a disagreement. It's very easy to idealize the early church in the book of Acts, right? We like to focus on the positives. Oh, the miraculous work of the Spirit, uh, the, the fellowship of the believers, they shared everything in common. Nobody had anything uh, in need. The advancement of the kingdom of God, the gospel going forth. So Acts is often quite romanticized. Lah. But today's passage shows us that even though they were all part of the church, they're all on the same side as God, they still had differences that led to conflict. But this conflict didn't necessarily lead to division or discouragement, which we will look at later. Sometimes we get the idea that a healthy church is completely without differences and everybody agrees with each other all the time. But that's just not true. Even if you remove sin as a factor, we're all created different. And that wasn't an accident. God created us all differently in a good way. And if you throw different people together, you will experience some conflict. Let me give you some examples. Uh, my wife and I have taken a number of couples through premarital counseling uh, before they get married. And every single one of them, I think, seven, eight, I, I, don't, <laughs> I haven't come properly. But every single one of these couples uh, want to get married because they love each other. Okay, and they are voluntarily choosing to spend the rest of their life together. No one is forcing them to marry each other, at least not to my knowledge. Lah. So, yet as all married couples know, even the healthiest of marriages are not without conflict. Those who are married can agree. Ah? Uh, okay, <laughs> very much so, yes. Uh, even if you have a very healthy, you consider yourself to have a very healthy marriage, it's not absent of conflict because we're, we're different. Two different people living together, right? Uh, different understanding about things, different background, uh, upbringing, different personalities and so on. And so not every conflict you will find is about good versus evil. Sometimes it's just about misunderstandings or mis, you know, miscommunication or whatever. And so think about this. If two people who are very attracted to each other and love each other very much and voluntarily want to choose to spend the rest of their life together and are committed to having the best marriage possible, if they can experience conflict, then what about a whole bunch of people who are different ages, different gender, different levels of education, different levels of spiritual maturity, different personalities, different experiences, everything else, you know, just thrown together because they worship the same God. 
Do you think conflict is something you might expect? What do you think? Yes, right. Those who are married, uh, definitely. Yes, yes. Of course, we, we, uh, differences will tend to give rise to conflict. Now, add to that our sinful attitudes, our sinful motives, our sinful words, sinful actions, and conflict will be present in any church. It should be expected. If there is absolutely zero conflict in the church, I think it says more about how honest and open that church is with one another, more than how healthy the church really is. You know what they say about how uh, we should never join a perfect church uh, because once we join, it's no longer going to be perfect, right? Because none of us are perfect. And that is central to the gospel that we live by and the gospel that we preach. That's why we all need Jesus in the first place. And so the presence of conflict is something to expect within a church setting. Not necessarily just like, you know, in this, in this century, in this congregation, but, you know, among believers, among brothers and sisters in Christ. So the presence of conflict is not the unhealthy part. How that conflict is managed is usually when it becomes unhealthy. That's when we start avoiding conflict, you know, pretending everything's okay when it's really not, uh, or we just start avoiding the person that we're conflicting with altogether, or we try to assert our will on everybody and you know, get everyone to do things our way, so no more conflict. Uh, just a few examples of unhealthy ways of managing conflict. So friends, if you have experienced or you are experiencing conflict with another brother or sister in Christ, you are in good company with the apostles and the rest of the early church. Okay, so if you're looking for a church that has no conflict, uh, don't waste your time. <laughs> it doesn't exist. Okay? And so, although the presence of conflict is an inescapable reality in our sinful world, every, I must say this, every conflict is an opportunity for Christ-like love to prevail, for Christ-like love to be shown and for Christ-like love to be experienced. Okay, let's look at our first question today for reflection or discussion in our families or small groups. How do you view conflict amongst believers? What sort of attitude would you like to have towards conflict? And for the kids uh, who might be worshipping with your families at home, how do you feel when somebody disagrees with you? How would you like to feel instead? Okay, let's spend two minutes reflecting on this question.
So if conflict is inescapable and unhealthy conflict management is the problem, how should conflict be managed then? Let's look at our next point. Let's look at how a, a God-centered approach uh, helped to resolve the conflict, or rather helped to, to manage the conflict at Jerusalem. Now, the issue was about Gentiles needing to become Jews in order to be saved, right? And Gentiles being circumcised in order to join in the worship of the God of Israel is something that is present and found in the Bible. So, Exodus chapter 12, verse 48, for example, says, A foreigner residing among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males in his household circumcised that he may take part like one born in the land. No uncircumcised male may eat it. Uh, other places in the Old Testament also mention the stranger or foreigner or some translations, the alien uh, in your midst, uh, living, living among the Israelites. And it implies, those, those passages also imply that these foreigners, Gentiles, can also worship the God of Israel. Okay, and the Jewish rabbis elaborate more on this. And so, if you only looked at this situation of this conflict, uh, if you only looked at this, this conflict and, and the issues surrounding it from a human perspective and you completely remove God from the events of you know, S chapter 10 and onwards, and you only looked at what was already there, humanly speaking, the believers would seem to be compromising on obeying God's laws because, you know, Bible say, ma, uh, Old Testament say, uh, that, that the, the foreigner needs to be circumcised. And so this is why it is crucial to look at the issue from God's perspective, okay, which is what the apostles do. They don't just go to what do the rules say or what is our experience, but they look at what does God how is God looking at this whole situation? But before I get into that, I just wanted to point out that in their reasoning and deliberations, they listen to one another well. Uh, verse 12 tells us the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul, you know, telling about what God had done among the Gentiles. And so, this shows us the importance of listening to one another in the midst of conflict management, healthy conflict management, uh, even if our views are different. One channel by which the Holy Spirit speaks to us is through the church, okay? Other believers, other people who believe in Jesus Christ. And patiently listening to one another allows the Holy Spirit to give voice through other believers, okay? But even as they listen to one another, Look at how they address the issue. And so I'm just going to very quickly go through a few of the passages that were already read to us just now. Huh? I just want to highlight. Uh, Peter got up, addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice. And then it goes on, God who knows the heart. And then it goes on, uh, right? Paul and Barnabas were telling about the signs and wonders God had done. And Simon, who is Peter, uh, described how God first intervened 
and James is saying, uh, it's my judgment, therefore we should not make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. I just wanted to highlight the amount of times in just these few verses that God is mentioned, not just, you know, uh, in the name of God, but what God has done, okay? And so this shows us that they were incredibly God-centered in their reasoning, in their deliberations, in their logic, arguments, whatever. All the stuff that they mentioned, Peter's mission to preach the gospel to Cornelius, a Gentile, uh, the Gentiles receiving the same Holy Spirit, the signs and wonders done among the Gentiles. Although they were involved, they were witnesses of all that, they didn't appeal to what they thought or what they wanted based on their human experience or their human tradition. God is the star of the show and the backbone of their reasoning. And so God's name here isn't just thrown around to give weight to what they think. They're not just saying, you know, as God is my witness, or God knows. No, these are accounts of things that had already happened, and they were clearly already recognized as God's activity by all the believers. And so, the, the, the believers here in the Council of Jerusalem, their role wasn't to decide whether Gentiles could or could not be saved without becoming Jews. Their role was to discern what was God up to? What was God doing? How was God working? And to join Him in the same way. And so they didn't just see what He was doing. They also looked at what He was saying through His Word. And so James brings up the words of the prophet Amos. Uh, and so if you look at uh, verse 12, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord who will do all these things. Now, this, this word nations there literally is Gentiles, translated as Gentiles, okay? So the, the Gentiles that will bear the Lord's name uh, Amos prophesying this is proof that they don't need to lose their national identity and become Jews. Instead, they can be different nations that bear the Lord's name. And so James is showing how Scripture is not standing in the way of the Gentiles belonging to God without becoming Jews. And so based on what God was already doing, His activity, and based on what the Word said, according to Scripture, they came to a common decision that they owned and acted on. Then the apostles and others with the whole church decided to choose some of their men and, and send them on with a message. And so, notice that they, they, the, the whole church uh, came together with this, this decision to communicate their decision. And so they communicated their decision by sending a letter with Paul, Barnabas, and two other church leaders. And their decision was based on what we have seen being discovered throughout the book of Acts, that the gospel is not just for the disciples who abandoned Jesus, it's not just for the Jews who crucified Jesus, it's not just for the Samaritans who are not pure-blooded Israelites, it was for everybody. 
all the way to the Gentiles at the ends of the earth. And the only directions that they were given were very practical instructions, okay, that uh, they said abstain from uh, sexual immorality, food offered to idols, uh, meat that has been strangled, and blood, right? And so these directions are very practical in the sense that those were things that were commonly associated with idol worship that the, the Gentiles were commonly involved in. And so they're just giving them very practical instructions. You stay away from that. You set yourself apart. You make yourself distinct from the rest of the Gentiles. And that's all you need to do. You don't need to do any other Jewish thing. Okay? Friends, we can learn from their God-centered approach when it comes to making decisions, especially together with other believers. And so this challenge is for all of us, and, and I include myself, that as we seek the Lord's direction for our ministries, for our small groups, for our families, for our own lives, the question isn't things like, what is everyone else doing successfully? Or what has been done all this while? The question is, what is God doing? And what does he have to say about this in his word? And then, only then, basing our decision on these things and owning that decision for ourselves. So, not just somebody else's decision, uh, pastor decide, <laughs> leaders decide. No, but we own that decision and we act on it in faith. Let's pause for our second reflection question. What is your usual process for decision-making? How can it become more God-centered? Okay, for the children, what helps you to choose things? How can you ask God for more help to choose better? Two minutes.
let's look at our final point for today. And that is a church united. Even though the church faced a conflict over an issue, they were able to come to a common decision that was God-centered. And so, we see that they, they came to that common unity uh, of the Holy Spirit and among themselves as well. And so, how is this unity possible? How was it possible for them? Uh, we've already looked at some things. They listened to one another carefully. Uh, they discerned what God was doing and saying. They came to a common decision. And so, what we see here is that their individual thoughts and interests took a back seat to God's interests and, God's, uh, and the interests of the church as a whole. Let me give you an example. I finally come back to Paul's letter to the Galatians, why I mentioned Galatians in the start. Sorry, it's a little small. If you want to read more clearly, you can turn to Galatians chapter 2, okay, verse 11 to 14. Let me read it for you. When Cephas came to Antioch, this is Paul speaking, huh? Paul writing. Uh, Cephas is Peter, okay, his Aramaic name. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Uh, just reading, reading this, this passage already makes me feel like, oh, oh, I feel for Peter. You know, I, uh, all the, 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 the tension, the discomfort, the awkwardness, the embarrassment. Uh, we don't really know when exactly the, the, these events of uh, Galatians chapter 2, 11 to 14 occurred, uh, but many scholars believe that it happens sometimes between Acts chapter 10, when Peter receives a vision, and Acts chapter 15, which is our passage today. And so, it's very likely that this thing happened before the Jerusalem Council that we're looking at today. Okay, and so what we see here is that Peter himself had been openly rebuked by Paul. If you can't read the caption, Paul is just scolding Peter. Lah, okay? uh, Peter has been openly rebuked by Paul in front of other people, maybe about a year earlier. And yet, Peter is not off sulking somewhere. Uh, he is... He hasn't left and gone on his own journey or went to plant, off a, plant a church somewhere, uh, the one be friends with Paul. He is there contributing vital testimony for the deliberations. And so, can you imagine being in Peter's shoes, being told off by Paul in front of the others, and then now uh, standing before this council and testifying basically what he... Uh, going against what he was doing, okay? Testifying against what he was doing. And it's not just Peter. The Pharisee believers, 
the ones who, who spoke up at the council and said uh, they should be circumcised, Gentiles should be circumcised, they should keep the law of Moses, the position that they proposed wasn't how the church decided. So their proposal was rejected and they were proven wrong. Okay, so, yet there's no mention of them leaving the church or continuing to oppose the decision or splitting away and bringing a group with them. They seem to have either agreed with the decision or submitted to it. Uh, maybe there's not as much info to draw such a conclusion for the Pharisee believers, but at least for Peter, it must have been incredibly humbling to be rebuked in front of people and then you know, later give a testimony that would affirm that rebuke. So we can glimpse in this passage not just the, the God-centeredness of the believers, but also the willingness of at least some of them to set aside their ego and to desire what God wanted and what was good for the church. Too many divisions in churches can be attributed to one or both of these factors, being human-centered instead of God-centered, or letting ego get in the way. Stubborn, wounded pride, whatever. And no matter what the motivations, even if people are convicted, oh, this is the right way, uh, the, the, the church is being led astray, uh, God, God clearly wants you know, things to go this way. No matter what the motivations, it's clear that divisions in church are not what God wants. So, maybe, maybe, it is a, a process. Maybe it's the timing. But God does not want divisions in church. Now, disclaimer, in case you all feel like, oh yeah, are you pointing fingers at me? No, 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 okay? I'm not talking about anybody here. I'm just saying in general. At least I don't know divisions among you. Huh? Um, I, I'm saying in general, or maybe even for future reference, if this becomes relevant. Okay, being humble and God-centered keeps the church united even despite tough decisions born out of conflict. Now, before we close, I wanted to draw your attention to verse 31 to 32, which says the people read the letter that was uh, sent uh, about their decision. Huh? The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. And so I just wanted to point out that the end result of this difficult decision, this tough call they had to make, this conflict, the end result was encouragement, strengthening. And so even though it was a tough call to make, even though it was born out of conflicting convictions, the end result was encouragement and strengthening for the believers, especially the Gentiles. They called they, in their letter, they referred to the Gentiles. Uh, they, they told the Gentiles, we are your brothers, basically. Yeah? So if we are able to be God-centered in our decision-making, even difficult decisions can lead to great blessing. It may not seem like it at that point, but remember, it's not the circumstances that bring blessing, but God himself. And so our last question for today have you witnessed a disruption to unity among believers? Not necessarily to you, but, you know, witnessing it around you. 
And what do you think is the remedy to that disruption to unity? And for kids, what advice would you give to two church friends who don't want to talk to each other? Okay, two minutes. So in conclusion, I'd like you to know that the church unites over God-centered decision-making. I'd like you to be humble and God-centered in your approach towards conflict management and do pursue unity among believers above all else. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.